Welcome to your AI Injection, the podcast where we discuss state-of-the-art techniques in artificial intelligence with a focus on how these capabilities are used to transform organizations, making them more efficient, impactful, and successful. Okay, welcome back to your AI Injection podcast. We've got our regulars, Bill Constantine and Carson Tusk, and uh, the three of us are going to discuss reasons why AI innovation fails, according to AI consultants, which includes the three of us. Uh, uh, Bill, Carson, and I are all data scientists here at Zionics. We already have an article uh, up on our blog about this topic, which we'll kind of ping you to in the de- and later on that uh, goes into a lot more detail, but let's go ahead and kick it off right now. Um, so uh, in your experience, let's just kind of start really broad. Like, you know, what do you guys think are some reasons why AI fails to take off, t- fails to get features into a product, um, you know, fails to kind of get some traction? I don't know, Carson, you want to start first? Uh, I can, because I can think of many reasons why AI will fail. All right. Well, let's take one of them. <laughs> All right. So one of them, um, lack of support. So, you know, you have like one, one part of your organization that is interesting in solving an AI problem. Um, they have some data scientists, they're making some progress towards it. But um, at the end of the day, they actually, in order to feed their system or to get the data they need, they actually need support of other pieces and parts of the organization. And that is sometimes hard to come by. And so um, while there might be a chance to get AI, you will never get the data you need. And because collecting the data um, takes effort, collecting the data might require changes to existing systems that other um, you know, parts of the organization might be resilient against. Um, it might even have to change the, your customer facing interfaces in order to get that data. And um, you will get pushback. And so sometimes what I've seen is people try to, well, let's, let's try it anyway and um, uh, bring the uh, start on the project, but ultimately it just fails because of lack of data, lack of support from other pieces of the organization. Yeah, I mean, sometimes as you know, we, we all know like companies have, um, you know, like a certain type of DNA, if you will, like some, uh, some companies are, um, you know, the rare exception are, you know, are tech companies that have this um, kind of cultural accommodation for data backed uh, features and data powered features and uh, a tolerance for some of the uncertainty, you know, within machine learning and, other ones are like brand new to it. And sometimes, you know, like I think what you're describing here at least resonates with me. Some companies um, at large maybe don't yet have the kind of collective motivation slash DNA slash imperative to integrate AI powered features into their products, but maybe a team or two or three does. And then, uh, you know, there, there can be some, uh, you know, some, some institutional kind of lessons or learnings that need to take place. I don't know, Bill, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think what Karsten mentioned is probably my number one issue in terms of stifling innovation with AI. I think if a company grows to be large enough and there's not this sort of incentive for (laughs) other parts of the company to sort of trust what the data scientists are churning out, 
you do get this pushback on really cool stuff and it may, it may never see the light of day as a result of that. Now, I've been in the situation in the past where that, that's actually happened. Um, we're producing this really cool innovative stuff with AI, but it just doesn't take with the company because basically they don't want to take the risk uh, that they were willing to take when they were a startup, you know, that they were willing to take when they were a younger company. So how well, does one overcome that? How does one overcome that, Deep? How do you... Or, or, I have an even better example. So, for example, I've... Um, well, we'll be the judge uh, of whether it's a better example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we had one situation where um, the company wanted actually to improve customer happiness with their product, right? Um, but the problem is the way that they measured it, um, or let's say the problem was that some of the department's... Um, performance was measured against the customer happiness. Yes. However, the whole system was slightly tweaked so that the way that they measured it, um, it defaulted to um, the highest happiness rating, like a, you know, uh, a five out of five stars if you didn't enter your happiness. Right. That was a good one. So you would get like this data distribution. Nobody's wants where, to like, get biased. the real data because then they don't get the exactly. bonus. <laughs> So exactly. And so, scientists put that into place. Yeah, right? it was yeah. the first yeah, problem we identified. We looked at customer happiness <laughs> and it was like, hey, you get 90% five-star ratings. Don't you think that's strange? No, no, everybody's super happy with our product. <laughs> um, and then we dug, dug in deeper and it was because it defaulted to, to um, five stars and uh, nobody ever cared of changing it, right? Yeah. People are lazy. Like 70% of them don't actually change that setting. But then our request to, to change that setting and either, um, you know, make it like an average of three on by default or even force the customers to enter some rating kind of uh, was hit with a lot of backlash, right? Because those departments were measured upon the customer happiness and they didn't want to change that. So you, you run into simple issues like that. Political. You know, I mean, like kind of related to that, I, th I think you're kind of I mean, I would just sort of like to take that up a notch. It's sort of this idea of dark data, like there's, which we run into a lot where oftentimes like the data scientists can sometimes be the very first people actually looking at data. Like we, you know, where, where data is sometimes being collected. Um, maybe it's being looked at like in this example that you had for, for the sake of performance bonuses, but no other reason. And, you know, but the data scientists might be the first ones to start looking at it from like a, a very different angle. And, you know, inevitably, you know, we find all kinds of anomalies and problems in the data and the way it's being gathered. And this kind of speaks to your, and so we need some changes there sometimes, you know, where, where um, we need to go back and we need to say like, you know, we had a, a customer, uh, you know, or a project that I'm thinking of right now where, you know, there was like a, a third party, um, you know, collector of the data for, for, for this project. This was a, an insurance company um, project. There was like a third party that was gathering data and, um, and, and, they, and there was like kind of minimal eyes on the data in, in, the, in some senses. And then we started kind of finding a lot of things that needed to be addressed in order to get like a prediction out. Uh, you know, it's so, you know, whether it was like predicting, you know, um, you know, like whether somebody's going to lapse or, or, or be a, a great customer or what have you, um, we needed to get these things resolved. And then all of a sudden you have this, so it's not necessarily just within the company that the, the resistance that you're talking about. Sometimes it's like, oh, now a project has to go to the company and the company has to go to a third party company that gathers data for something. And the further away a company is from the ability to change that data flow, the more problematic things can get. Amen, yeah. brother. 
Amen. I, I have experienced that. Oh man. I, yeah, I've experienced that big time. And I think, is it the case with you guys? I mean, it's, it's a lot of times we are the first people to look at the data um, in a very sort of serious way, but oftentimes we don't know the origin of the, that data, whether there's quality control on that data, whether it's rich being collected from a variety of sources. We sometimes are just handed this stuff and we got to go through it. And then we start figuring stuff out, start yeah. asking questions. And, and at that point, when we start asking enough questions and found enough gotchas, that's when you start thinking about maybe we should be the ones that are taking this data in. Yeah, and not uh, collecting it. You know, it's that's kind of like an estate sale. You know, you, you get yes. led into somebody's dark basement and you're like, do you guys have data on it? Yeah, we do have data. And you go down the stairs and you see like this, this dark basement with all kinds of stuff in there. And you're like, well, I kind of need a garden hose. I'm not sure there is one here. So yes. the, the, no, but the there's a pile of rubber of... tubes over here. And then there's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, some, some copper yeah. ringlets over there. The, the, the mismatch of the data that they have and the problem they want to solve is, is actually a huge issue. And then like we just alluded to, the challenge of getting the right data if it doesn't already exist. You're listening to your AI injection brought to you by Zionix.com. That's X-Y-O-N-I-X.com. Check out our website for more content or if you need help injecting AI into your organization. Have you guys ever been in this situation deep? I'm asking you in particular where uh, a client was beholden to a particular third party to, to get their data, but then that third party like went away. And so literally the source of their data was going to go away. And then they had to sort of scramble to try to replace that. That I, I personally have seen that before. When, it feels kind of like um, control of your data pipeline and your ability to affect it is like, you know, really important for success. And the lack of that is really important for failure. Is, would you guys agree with that? Totally. Absolutely. I've seen it. I've seen it cut, rear its ugly head quite a few times now, actually. Uh, yeah, so I, mean, I, I totally agree. I feel it's okay to go with the third parties um, in, in order to save resources if you don't have them in house, but um, you better have a backup plan and you have a back, better have a backup plan to the backup plan. So in other words, if you had to, you should know how to get that data, right? For example, you go to a company that's uh, web scraping for you or something and data acquisition, great. Don't build a team in-house to do that. Um, outsource it, great. But you know that if you had to, you could build that team in-house. And so that's your backup plan. Yeah, or you could I swap think, it out, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. that's that's yeah. very important, I think. Yeah, and and, and like maybe, um, so so we're kind of honing in on some, some culturally issues. Uh, sort of kind of pivoting a little bit. Do you like, let's look, so we've been looking at the culture of a company, but are there cultural issues within data scientists themselves that maybe um, lead to AI failures? And I'm, uh, yeah, like, can you guys I, think of I stuff have, that- I have a great one. Okay. I have a great one. Again, we'll be the judge you... of whether it's great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm telling you, this is a slam. Okay, up. let's hear it. I, I bet it's since you, <laughs> okay, here we go. I'm, I'm putting myself out there. No, I think uh, I've been in a situation where we have these incredibly smart data scientists who know nothing about production. Uh -huh. And they're very, they're very, very resistant to that. I think one of the things I appreciate about us, if I'm going to pat ourselves on the back, is that 
we've been around the, we've been around long enough to know that if you're going to get something out, it's not just a matter of you being smart and being able to, to uh, come up with great innovative scientific ideas and, and analytics. You have to be able to get it out in production. And actually, one of the things I can say I very much appreciate about Zionics and Deep, maybe you're you you press this is getting an A to Z sort of you know uh, a thing wheels in production going early and focusing on sort of continual improvement of of uh, the the product as you as you uh, as you go along yeah i mean that's those but, are those are lessons we've kind of learned the hard way yeah um, carson you were going to say i was going to say we, we have seen the opposite too though so that that's you know mm. uh, that's a double edged sword because we have seen companies where they were so focused on production uh, that the ai discussion kind of like fell under the table right where <laughs> operational security was their main thing and for every little thing even before validating that there was an AI solution to their problem they were worried about operational uh, support and structure etc yeah. etc et and um, my advice for that is look at your problem first see if it can be solved because if it can be solved you will find a way to put it into production but the other way around is just initially really not important Yeah, that's that's a good good point, and and like you know, I, I I've uh, um, you know seen that not just from uh, you know the vantage of security, but you know you see that you see like folks worrying about all kinds of stuff, but whether there's signal, <laughs> like, yeah. and and it's almost like you know companies have kind of a natural core competency, and if you take a, a any any meeting full of people, there's going to be a, like a natural set of core competencies there. You know, like some groups. Like some companies are just like naturally great at like DevOps, for example, like, you know, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I, th I think we, uh, you know, this made me think of a project where, you know, it was like, a, you know, a, a healthcare company that was like really awesome at, at getting things into, uh, you know, a SaaS production environment with very sensitive, you know, patient healthcare data, which as you can imagine, requires you to be pretty good at, at DevOpsy stuff, uh, especially at scale. And what we've seen is like that kind of natural, um, kind of core competency or DNA in the room, if you will, can hijack the conversation. It can like make it so that, you know, you're just talking about DevOps issues or just talking about security issues or just talking about architectural issues, none of which matter if there's no signal. Like if you're trying to predict the stock market, you know, and, uh, and, and you know, at, at, you know and, and get like 70% signal on a 50-50 bet on whether a stock's going to go up or down. Uh, and all you do is talk about security and stuff. You're not, you, you know, you could spend half, have your lifetime trying to, you know, plan your company out only to find out when you check for signal, like that's, you know, not exactly there. Like that's the golden goose that doesn't exist. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. So. And there's a naivete about how AI in some people's minds can solve any problem, no matter, no matter what. And that, well, you know, you know, it's just, you, there's an expectation with those companies that are said it may be like DevOps focused, they generally get a lot of stuff done because there's a lot of sort of protocols in place for them to do so. And they don't necessarily have uh, compassion for the data scientists when they're doing sort of research-based AI approaches that, it, you know, sometimes we face incredibly challenging problems that, that aren't, you don't make progress. Sometimes, sometimes yeah, it I comes think, in chunks. And, I think it's uh, due to a lack of understanding of how it actually works, right? Where people mm -hmm. say, well, hey, if it can do this, then it should be able to do that. Yes. And what they don't realize is that one is totally trivial and simple and the other one is almost impossible and has never been done. 
right. And uh, if you if you don't have experience in the field and if you don't really know how the algorithms work, you might, as a you know layman, not really realize that. Um, and so people people have um, unrealistic expectations sometimes, and that that's also a reason why AI fails because they go into this this project with the idea, hey, I've seen it detect kittens. Um, it should do this this my project here with high accuracy as well. Um, and it just won't. And, and they say, well, if it can't do that, then I'm not interested. Uh, whereas really what they should be asking is, how can I, AI improve my existing process? Rather than it, even if it cannot really solve my problem that I envision, um, can it help me along the way, right? Can I put a, a human in yeah. the middle and, and um, you know double their work efficiency? Because I feel like AI is about efficiency improvement, not necessarily solutions to problems because... Um, you know, we, we have this typical learning curve. If we can get to like 70% accuracy on, on many problems fairly easily, then going from 70 to 80 will take us a year and going from um, 80 to 90 is 10 years of research. And many people don't realize that. They think it's it's a linear progression scale. And just like engineering, if I just put enough manpower at it and just work on it, it will make progress. No, yeah. it does not. It's exponential and your progress might stop because the end of the day, uh, AI is still research unless you're trying to do something that has done before. You're listening to your AI injection brought to you by Zionix.com. That's X-Y-O-N-I-X.com. Check out our website for more content or if you need help injecting AI into your organization. Um. Once going back to the idea of you know cultural um, kind of issues within data the data science world, um, you know, Bill, you kind of you know pointed out one. I'm going to just kind of add another one that I see uh, a lot, which is you know data scientists like most of us come from an academic background. Most of us have spent time uh, you know sl- slogging away in in, in grad school. And, uh, and very little to no credit generally in grad school comes from um, finding better data and almost all uh, credit and, uh, you know, and medallions get handed out for those who come up with new algorithms, new you know, deep learning architectures, who basically push on the models itself. And, uh, and I see the same thing in the, you know, in the data science practical world where it feels to me like almost uh, an inordinate amount of energy goes into coming up with new models, model types, model structures, model architectural tweaks, but relatively little comes from the data when in reality that the, the opposite is what really can push the problem you know, and, 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 and make uh, progress. What do you guys think about that? I, I just I, want to chime in there. Sorry to interrupt, Carson. No, go for I, it. I want to chime in there. I think that that is very well put. Um, I just... My own experience coming from academia, I studied cardiodynamics and there was so much research going on and being able to take basic ECG level types of signals and be able to do something good with it. And machine learning was coming up, you know, starting to really take a foothold and people were just going crazy thinking, well, I'm going to take this regular basic data and I'm going to feed it through this random forest and these neural nets and they're going to come up with magic. When in fact, that really wasn't the case in many, many circumstances. When I had the opportunity to work with some cardiologists and we got these implantable cardioverter defibrillator data, ICD data, uh, where you're measuring literally when somebody was alive and then at the end of it, their heart was fibrillating, so they're on the course of dying. We had, we had that kind of data was just incredibly rare and we we're able to milk it for all of its worth. 
but but that storyline came back and and has come back many many times it goes down to the data first and then maybe you can apply some fancy algorithms on top of it but the the attention to data should be the first thing cool that's it that's it um i'm gonna i'm gonna switch gears here so one of the problems that i see um in the you know getting ai back features kind of adopted into products is there sort of a, and this kind of goes back, Carson, to what you were saying about almost this like belief that machine learning can kind of do more than it, it can. And, and you were talking about, you know, getting, you know, from, you know, 70% efficacy to 80, 90, you know, into the mid and high nineties is, you know, it's like an evolution, it's a timeline. But um, a lot of times as a business, you know, what I see is folks, um, will put machine learning and the inevitable errors that the models will have upfront and write, you know, directly expose the users to them. And one of the kind of paradigms that, you know, that I see being missed um, when you do that is you start obsessing on the inevitable errors that the models got. So you start um, quickly, you wind up in a scenario where you know, maybe a salesperson exec, you know, somebody's out like pitching, demoing, and then, you know, the things fail. Like, you know, it comes back with like, you know, um, bad predictions, bad recommendations, whatever. And then the conversation, like the, the, the energy goes to like, you know, can easily be distracted down to like one or two or a set of examples. When in reality, I think businesses would be better off if they stuck a human in the middle and they start looking at some of these problems more with a, 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 a human in the loop so that you, you sort of think, of thing, think about things differently. Like if you're trying to build, uh, you know, something um, that, I don't know, let's say is, uh, you know, trying to have uh, conversations with highly, you know, with, with uh, you know, psychiatric patients or with somebody with some psychological issues kind of in the vein of a therapist, for example, um, you're, you're, if you rethink your business around how, what is a service that's being offered today and how can I le put some of those humans in that loop and then take the machine learning and instead of putting it front and center where it's right off the bat, it's talking to people in the form of a bot, in which case it goes off the rails quickly, but instead leverage it to kind of bring efficiencies to those, to those humans. Do you guys, what, what do you guys think about the concept of like humans in the loop and AI errors just being too exposed? I, I think it's very important because I feel like, um, you know, we come from a, I feel like the people that are managing AI projects are used to managing um, software projects where there's a bug, so um, please fix it, right? And that just really does not happen. People spot errors of your AI and they say, okay, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. The next version should fix those things. And that's just not really how it works at all. Um, you know, you can try to mitigate these errors and that they're like very significant. You can try to build better models that have less of those errors, but you will never be able to address one specific example or get rid of something that somebody, some executive noticed. Um, I think the message is, learn how to live with the errors and what is an error rate that you can accept because you should not expect a flawless model. And I feel like that's where the man in the middle comes, comes into play. And um, I like to call it like search space reduction, right? Let's say you have a, a problem where 
Um, typically, there's an error rate of, let's say, 80%, and there's a man that, that sits there 12 hours a day and has to look through 10,000 samples of errors, right? If I have a machine learning model with, a, with an accuracy of 50% or 60%, I can read time that that person has to spend manually correcting these errors by 50%. And I feel like that's a huge gain, right? We should not, we should not actually expect AI to replace humans. We should expect them to, uh, we should expect AI to augment them and make their life easier and increase their efficiency, not, not necessarily solve the problem 100%. Um, I'm going to switch gears uh, for, uh, for, for one uh, last topic. Um, have either of you sort of seen scenarios where um, AI fails to like take off or, or, or make it somewhere based on, let's say, um, a suboptimal structure of team where like the teams are just not structured right. So this is kind of an organizational question. Or maybe there's like insufficient team strength in a particular area, like where maybe there's uh, not enough either core ML expertise or maybe programming expertise or distributed computing expertise or something like that. I would say lack of programming expertise has certainly stunted the growth and potential of certain products that I've worked on in the past. Um, and that's been um, a bit of a frustration because I think it, it very much cut short the longevity of a really cool idea and cool project because folks just didn't know how to get things done in terms of an engineering perspective. I've never been personally involved in a team where there was a lack of technical expertise um, with analytics. Uh, so I've been sort of blessed in that sense, I guess you could say, but I've definitely fallen short on the engineering side, which is important. Great. I think we're going to have to wrap up. Um, I think uh, we've covered maybe not all of the reasons machine uh, learning or AI systems kind of uh, fail to get out the door, but I feel like we've touched on um, you know a lot of those, a lot of the issues uh, here, whether it's uh, cultural or procedural. Um, so um, with that, uh, I will uh, let's call it a wrap. Thanks, guys, for coming in and and chatting. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was fun. All right. All right. Till next time. All right. Till next time. That is all for this episode. I'm Deep Dylan, your host, saying check back soon for your next AI injection. In the meantime, if you need help injecting AI into your business, reach out to us at Zionix.com. That's X-Y-O-N-I-X.com. Whether it's text, audio, video, or other business data, we help all kinds of organizations like yours automatically find and operationalize transformative insights.